chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Last week we began a series on the Lord's Prayer and we looked at the setting of the two passages in which the Lord uh, Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer or what we call the Lord's Prayer, that model prayer. The first one is in Luke chapter 11 where he responds to the disciples' question, Lord, Teach us to pray, even as John taught his disciples to pray. And then we see in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew that Jesus gives the classic, what we would, most of us remember and what we've quoted probably of the Lord's Prayer, that classic expression of it. We looked a little bit about of the structure of the Lord's Prayer and how it's structured very much like the Ten Commandments in the sense of there are six petitions, three of which pertaining to God, three of which pertaining to us, very similar to the Lord's Prayer, and we also looked at what prayer is and what prayer is not. And if you missed that and you want to catch that introduction to the Lord's Prayer, um, that recording of that's available on our website. You can um, go back and check that out. And this week, we're going to get going with the actual words of the Lord's Prayer itself, um, and come to the next phrase of the invocation. Now, the invocation is just a fancy word to, to, call, to call upon. So when someone has a beginning prayer that might be called an invocation, it's just to call upon God at the beginning. And so uh, the beginning of the Lord's Prayer is this, Our Father who is in heaven. And last week we talked about the idea of Father and Our Father, and uh, we talked a little bit about that, and this week we're going to expand two more points of that father idea and then look at the phrase, who is in heaven. And so, um, Jesus says, uh, well, the disciples say, Lord, teach us to pray. And so, the Lord's Prayer is a response to that I- big idea of what prayer is. And so, there's many definitions of prayer. Prayer is the converse of the soul with God and uh, communication with God. But I really like the ones that I wanted to share. I shared this with you last week, and I'd like for us to actually read these aloud together. And so what we're going to do is I haven't put on the screen the, uh, question, um, the qu- two questions from the Westminster Shorter Catechism on the Lord's Prayer. I'm going to read the question, and I want you to read the um, answer. It's on the screen. So question 98 is, what is prayer? Let's read this aloud. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgments of his mercies. The next question. What rule hath God given for our direction in prayer? The whole word of God is of use to direct us in prayer But the special rule of direction is that form of prayer which Christ taught his disciples, commonly called the Lord's Prayer. And so, so the so this 
special rule of a rule or standard by which God, Jesus has taught us to pray is this, is the Lord's Prayer. And so we'll go to the next slide and I actually want to just us all quote this, the Lord's Prayer together as we see this. That's, we'll do it in the King James because that's how most of us would know it. And so we'll do it that way. Here we go. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and give us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And Father, would you add a blessing to this reading of your word and prayer that you have given us. Help us now, Father. We expect you to work and use your word. And we thank you for what you'll do. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we set up the big idea of this whole thing that the Lord's Prayer teaches us how to pray and what to pray. It teaches us what prayer is and what prayer is not. And really the whole idea behind that is a couple points. And one is that we are to be praying. I mean, I mean, part of the, 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 if you know what a Christian is, I mean, when a baby is born and, and, and you, it starts breathing and crying, and if they don't do that, they often will to make sure it cries as soon as that baby's born. And it is just really natural for a Christian to pray. The prayer is going to, they're going to, we're going to talk to you. So we're to, and see, Jesus, when he starts out the Lord's Prayer, he says, when you pray, Pray like this. He doesn't start off by when he's introducing this idea here in Matthew chapter 6. He doesn't start off saying, if you pray or if you get, get, get really desperate and all you can do now is pray. He just says, when you pray. It is an assumed thing that Christians are going to pray. It is important throughout all the scriptures we see prayer mentioned so many times. Uh, Jesus models that there's so many times in the New Testament that Jesus is going out and uh, being an example and going out and early and praying. The early church uh, gave themselves to this. It's very important to see that in Acts 2. We see it in Acts 6. We see it throughout the book of Acts. Um, and so we are that. And then what Matthew chapter 6 and Jesus and the Lord's Prayer shows us that we need, this is the other big point, that we need to be taught how to pray. We need to be taught to pray. Um, and so Jesus gives us so many of these here. If you're in Matthew chapter 6, you'll see in verses 9 to 13 what we just read aloud. But in there, Jesus gives some warnings about how not to pray and what they shouldn't be doing and all in this context of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, but we often think, well, this is kind of really elementary. I mean, really, a series on the Lord's Prayer. I mean, we all know this, right? And we can become very arrogant that way. Because if the first disciples, the, the, the apostles themselves, needed Jesus to teach them to pray, and this is how he taught them, uh, don't think of ourselves as higher or, or on a different plane than them. So we need to be taught how to pray. Uh, it's, it's a first step. But prayer also shows what we really believe. Prayer shows what we um, what what we truly believe. Um, the next slide, I want to put a couple of these points up here. If you want to go ahead and advance that, um, oh, there's another quote. Uh, we'll share that later. Next, next one. That, yeah, how to pray, what to pray. It teaches what prayer is and what prayer is not. One more over, and then we'll see that we are 
um, we are to be, be, be being praying, and we are to be, need to be taught how to pray. Well, next slide there. And uh, that as we pray, so we believe. Uh, our prayer shows what we truly believe. Our theology, what we think, is no more shown than when we're praying. Um, it displays for us, uh, that since the, uh, displays for others, what we truly believe. Um, as J.C. Ryle plainly put it, tell me what a man's prayers are, and I will soon tell you the state of his soul. Prayer is the spiritual pulse. So we need to be praying. And then the context teaches us then that we, all, we need to guard against temptation when praying, and particularly um, the temptation that Jesus points out of the Pharisees and the hypocrites uh, in here in the Sermon on the Mount. And that's kind of like when a, when a surgeon is taught, I've heard this, that when they teach surgeons to be good surgeons, they first start by telling them what not to do. In fact, that's part of the Hippocratic oath is to do no harm. Uh, you start, okay, so prayer is not this. And so Jesus gives those warnings. Prayer isn't to be mechanical or overly repetitive. Uh, prayer is not to be manipulative, um, trying to manipulate God. And we see, so, and basically we say, are we trying to impress God or others in our prayers? Because we, we can try to do both. We can try to impress others with the length of our prayers or the words we use. And we talked a little bit about that last week. Also, we can try to impress God that we're trying to, you know, get him to do something for us or uh, give him some kind of news report. And the, and the text even tells us God already knows this stuff. We're not telling them anything new. Um, and so prayer is not some a place for us to parade our piety before others. It's not a place where we do some type of self-expression or therapy. Uh, we talked a little bit about that last week. It's not a time to persuade, like, oh, if I pray hard enough, God will do this. Um, no, um, it's no, we don't report. So anyway, so then we come for sake of time. We need to get to the words of the prayer itself. And last week we looked at these first two words in our Father. Uh, Our reminds us that we tend to be overly individualistic in everything in life. And so it's actually odd when you look at the Lord's Prayer to say, what if you read that with a first person singular pronoun instead? You know, my Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. Give me my, give me this day my daily bread. Forgive me my debts. Um, lead me not. It almost sounds like, it's just weird because it's our. There's, I mean, you, we're all included in that hour, but it reminds us that, that, that when, you, when you come into a relationship with Christ, you come into a relationship with Jesus' bride and the church. To, so to be Christian is to be a part of the church and, and that we need to have that mindset of being part of the group and not only focus on ourselves in prayer. It doesn't mean that we, that we have personal needs that we need to bring to God in prayer, but that we need to have that mindset. And uh, Al Mohler said it well when he said one of the besetting sins of evangelicalism is our obsession with individualism. And so we left that off of our, and, um, and here's where I want to pick up uh, this week, is that um, when he says our Father, it's a point of us being together, but it's also a, a, re- referring to a point of a unity in the church. Uh, we um, often 
uh, to call this the Lord's Prayer. But really, if we're going to see a prayer of Jesus uh, in the in the Bible, John seventeen, the Lord's high priestly prayer, is kind of what we could officially say Jesus' prayer. And in that prayer, Jesus prays that his flock, that his church, would be one in truth. And this comes to this idea of what is Christian unity about? And, and we often will hear um, that we need to have unity. And the churches, we have all these denominations and all these groups, and we just need to all be one and have, you know, you know all get together and hug each other and sing kumbaya, right? And, and we'll brag. Well, we don't want to teach church doctrine. We just want to be Christian. Well, let me tell you, you don't have Christianity without doctrine. Because the gospel is news. You have to have that. And, and so this idea of like what we would call ecumenism, and, and this church was birthed out of a, a protest against this idea, is this, the whole idea is that we would uh, boil everything down to the least common denominator. Okay, So those of you that are learning how to do division and the common denominators, you would say, well, what, what's the basic thing that we could get down to that we could all just agree on and throw everything else out? Do we love Jesus? And then we'll just all do that, right? Well, then there's all these questions. Which Jesus? How, how is he portrayed? Like, I mean, there's so many. Um, uh, is this the Bible Jesus or the Jesus that someone else made up? Or, um, but when Jesus points to true Christian unity that can cross denominations and cross churches and is, is in truth. And what the Lord's Prayer shows us is that it can be seen in prayer. That the unity of God's people can be seen in prayer. That prayer is part of that unity. Um, there are phrases that my parents used that I do not use in normal language. There are phrases that my grandparents use that I don't use. And there are phrases that we use and my kids use that I don't get. I mean, one of the things I love about ministering here is being around the school kids. And so it kind of gives me that... It, best of both worlds you get to be a pastor and a youth pastor at the same time and they they teach me phrases you know and I'm like well I would have never used that before you know and one that I've been trying to incorporate into my vocabulary is ghosting and they'll talk about how someone I was texting them and I was Instagramming this person and they just started ghosting me and I'm like ghosting you know and I'm thinking Slimer and stuff like this and they're like oh I presume someone doesn't respond to you for a while you know but that wasn't you know, a thing, even that's a different, you know, like if you say, hey, that's a thing now, right? It's trending or whatever. And there's all these different things that are language changes. But what we just did a few minutes ago, we use the same phrases in a prayer that that particular setting Christians have been doing for 400 years now. And, and in different languages, and maybe in different settings, Christians have been saying those same words for over 2,000 years now. I mean, there's probably not many other things that you've been able to f- say something in a prayer that has been the same thing that Christians around the globe and around the centuries have said. And that unites us. That I, we could take ourselves back to you know, Egypt or Asia Minor in the first century. And it might be in a different language, but when we come together to worship, could say the same things. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And we'd be united together. There's a sense of unity that comes in this. Um, 
So we are part of the our father, our, our, our together, the church, you know. And so we ask, are you, do you get overly individualized when you pray? Is it so all about me, my, my, this, my family, my, this, my trips, my job, my money, my health, my family's health? Or is there an hour? And you think differently when you're, on a, when you're with others. Uh, there's that collectiveness. And um, um, there's a famous story of G.K. Chesterton um, when there was a, a letter written out to a lot of English intellectuals in Victorian England asking them this question, what is the problem with the world? And many of them wrote back with these big, long philosophical essays. And um, Chesterton wrote back famously, short little phrase, you know, to the question, what is the problem with the world? He just said, I am sincerely yours, Chesterton. And I love that because it's so simple yet so profound. But it's this idea of like that one of our biggest problems and deficiencies in prayer is that we start out with concern about me, the big I, you know, I need this, I need this. But the Lord's Prayer just hits that right from the beginning with our, a plural pronoun. Our Father. When it says Father... We introduced this idea last week of how we're redeemed and salvation and that gospel idea, but, but I want to dig a little bit deeper this week because the Father, our Father, this is the idea, this is a radical theological statement. I mean, this is like, because at, at this point, when Jesus speaks this at the Sermon on the Mount, the Old Testament evidence of who is called Father, who gets to call God their Father, And it was used 14 times in the Old Testament. And it was all referring to Israel, national Israel, collectively, God being their father. And now Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, our father. That there is an intimate relationship with the God of the universe through Jesus. That we we have a privilege that Jews didn't have. That he is our father. We have something Israel didn't have. This intimate relationship with the father. That this word, it starts off the prayer in gospel terms. That in reminding us that in order to have this relationship with God, we had to be adopted. We needed to be born again into his family. And so this is huge. The gospel is what should draw us into a life of prayer. It's not a discipline outside of the gospel. It's part of the gospel. So we have this special relationship with God that is different than that of Old Testament Israel. We have this relationship through adoption. So God demonstrates his fatherhood through adoption, provision, faithfulness, and care. And there were several passages we looked at last week. I want to put some of those on the screen again just so we can walk through them. The first one's in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. We'll go ahead and put that up here as well. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Let's read that together. I'll read it aloud. So we read that. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us 
for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And the next one is Galatians chapter four, verses four and five, where it says that when the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, and get this, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. That's huge. That adoption comes through redemption, through what Jesus did for us. And then the verse that Reese read for us this morning. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For we didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but we've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. That's, that's huge. And then the last one is, is John 1, verse 12. Um, there's the end of that verse, and we'll go on there. That um, John 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them gave he power, the ability to become the authority to become sons of God, the right to become children of God. So this is this is gospel. This is gospel that's right here. So um, I, I want to. There's a couple other issues that I this idea of fatherhood of God brings up. The first one is um, that it. This is a. Th- I said this is a. This is a, a kind of a theological thing. I'm gonna kind of step off here and we'll go into the classroom for a second here. Okay. So God is our Father. It reminds us something about God. It, the study of God is theology. The study of God, what He's like. That God is our Father. That means He is not. Use the force, Luke. He is not this impersonal force that's just this. Now, the Bible says explicitly that God is spirit, but it says that he is a personal God. He has a personal relationship with us and with his people. He is a, but then the other one is this, that you may have heard people say the, the whole the, the fatherhood of God, aren't we all God's children, right? Um, this was really popularized a couple centuries ago uh, especially in New England, um, by the Unitarian movement. It really wreaked havoc on Christianity in America, and a lot of the old historic Orthodox institutions and churches were just, uh, the deity of Christ was taken away, and uh, miracles, and need for an atonement, and all these things because God was a unit, not a trinity, but one of the other things about it is they talked about the fatherhood of God and that God is all of our fathers. There's kind of this idea, this universalism, Unitarian universalism, that we're just all going to heaven and we might have different ideas and we might call God different names. We might have different ideas of how to come to him, but we're all God's children, aren't we? Kumbaya, you know, and have this idea. And, and so... Um, you know, the, the little phrase about the Unitarians was that they believed in the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man in the neighborhood of Boston. So as if Jamie needed one more reason to not like Red Sox fans, um, it was the, the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man, and the neighborhood of Boston, and the, the brotherhood of man that we're all in. Now, we need to let the Bible speak. Is it true that God has cre- calls all creation part of, he is a father of all creation. Yes, the Bible says he's the father of all creation. So he is a father in the sense of, of over everyone, but the Bible's explicit that he is the father, truly the father only to those that have put their faith in Christ. 
I was reading my devotions this week and uh, doing the McShane Bible reading plan and came to John 8 where there's this argument that Jesus has with them. And he said with them, he goes, if you were of your father, they're like, wait, 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 we're uh, uh, our father's Abraham. And, 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 and he's saying, no, you're not like your father. And and they and they and they even bring up you know, we weren't born of fornication, bringing up this idea, this reputation that Joseph and Mary had had. And c- can you imagine that? Joseph and Mary from the beginning had, knew they were called to live a life with bad reputations for the sake of the gospel. That they were going to be maligned, and even in Jesus' adulthood, they were still this. Well, we weren't born of fornication. But he reminds them, he goes, you're of your, fa- you're of your father, the devil. That we're not, na- only those that have received Christ are his children, are his sons and daughters. So um, I think that the, um, the, the, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 really kind of nails this when it says that God is fatherly to all creation, but he is truly only father to those that have received Christ. So God's father lead to everyone, but he is truly only father to those that have become believers in Christ. So that is one of the things there, an issue of the fatherhood of God. The other argument that comes here is there, we are told, uh, there are many religions that would teach this fatherhood of God idea. Um, the, The Masons are famous for this, emphasizing the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. Um, but there's an, but we're told in the modern world, and this mainly happened in the, in la, in the last century and in, in my lifetime, even though I didn't know about this, but in the seventies and the eighties and even in the nineties, uh, there's a lot of argument that we shouldn't use the term father exclusively to describe God. That, and, and here's the thing, liberalism and Bible deniers don't come in, you know, with, looking like Gargamel. They always come looking like really nice, you know? They don't, they don't come like the wicked rich going, I'll get you, my pretty. No, they come like, no, 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 we shouldn't use the term father of God because, you know, there are some people that that's a hurtful phrase. They had a bad dad. They didn't have a dad. They had an abusive dad. So when you call God their father, you're kind of hurting them and bringing up those traumatic and anxious feelings and emotions. So don't use that term well there's a there's a, a sub presupposition there like well how do you know if, if you if you say they had a bad dad you the presupposition is that they know good dad from bad dad right the fact that they could even make that differentiation. the other argument that why the real reason why they're wanting to go after not calling god father is is this feminist theology that you know well we could call him the mother God is mother. Why is God just father? Why can't we call him God mother? Right? Um, and you know, there were even translations done in the 90s and 2000s trying to be gender inclusive in this. Um, and and, and this, isn't, this isn't just about bathrooms. I mean, this is about theology here, right? I mean, this is, this is a big thing. And so, um, and so we need to use God, inclusive language here. I mean, if we only call God Father, how will women know how to relate to him? See, the issue is that 10 out of 10 women I know had a father. So how would they relate? know how to relate if they call God Father? 
Um, now, when the Bible, what so we need to ask is, what does it mean that the Bible calls God Father? Now, it, what it does not mean is God is not Father in the biological sense. Okay, and the Bible is clear that God is a spirit and that He is neither male nor female. But what God does in all languages, he gives us an analogy. He, he, says it, he speaks to us in a certain sense. The sun rises, the sun sets, even though we know it's not the sun, it's the earth that's moving and all these things, right? God speaks to us in language so that we know how to relate to him. If God did not speak to us in language, so God exists and he's spoken to us through his inerrant, infallible, inspired word. And God chose in language to use the word father to describe his relationship to his people he chose that on purpose and so it is analogous in the sense that it is god is not biologically a father but it is not metaphor okay metaphor is a different it's not an analogy metaphor is different a metaphor is saying something is like something now the bible does say this that Jesus looks out over Jerusalem and says, as a mother hen over her chicks, so I would gather you under me, old Jerusalem, Jerusalem. But he uses metaphoric language as a mother. But when God speaks of his relationship to us and our relationship to him, he says, our father. So what right does someone have to call anyone their father? They either had to be born his child or adopted his child. And this is the beauty of this, our father. And I shared that quote from Tim Keller last week, or that that tweet, that the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. And we have that kind of access. We have that access to God. So if our father teaches us about the intimate relationship of God that he has for us. As we come to the next part of the invocation, which art in heaven or who is in heaven, what does that mean for us? And that's where we're going to go next. So we start off this prayer in gospel terms. Our Father, who art in heaven. So I read a book one time on prayer that said it this way. That, we, that said this, that we need to begin praying by remembering to whom it is that we're praying. And so this phrase, who is in heaven, reminds us who we are praying to. So when Jesus uses this phrase, he is highlighting a few things about God that we need to remember. So there's a few points here. He is really teaching the transcendence of God. So the, the, it, who is in heaven teaches us about the superiority of God. It's the first blank. The superiority of God. How majestic God is. In 1 Kings chapter 8, it says that that heavens and heavens cannot contain him. But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less than the temple which I have built. So basically when it says God is in the heaven, I mean the Old Testament when they have the temple and the, the tabernacle, they're saying that you can't contain God. The heavens can't contain God. Now, when it says the heavens, it's not saying there's a particular place way up in the sky, and if you send enough astronauts, you'll find it. No, it's saying that he is beyond, he is outside, he is superior, he is big. There's another expression of God's, it's an expression of God's sovereignty. 
there's a, in Psalm 113, it says this, Psalm 113, I'm sorry, one, not 113, Psalm 115, verse 3, if you want to write this down. Psalm 115, verse 3, it says, Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. So when the Bible uses the phrase God in the heavens, it's speaking of him being superior, him being majestic, him being sovereign. Sovereignty means dominion. So in Hebrews 1 verse 10, it says that God's kingdom, his heavenly kingdom will endure forever. So when it says that God is in heaven, our father who is in heaven, it is saying that this God is not some tribal deity or some local God or the God of Americans or the God of Western people or a European idea or something like that. He is saying he is the God who supersedes and is superior and majesty. He is the high king. He's not just one of the local kings. He is the high king, high king of heaven, as the hymn writer says. And then the phrase in heaven teaches us about God's transcendence. Trans meaning beyond or to go across from. Transcend. It's the last point there. In heaven teaches about God's transcendence. Transcends means that he is outside of time. He is outside. God is not confined by the laws that the world that he created operates in. So there are things like that he created, time, space, and matter. But he is not bound by time, space, or matter. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created the beginning. He created the heavens. He created the earth. He created time, space, and matter. He created all that, and he is outside of it. He, is tra- he transcends all of it. So how do, we, so how do you explain how God can say this from the beginning and that from the end and things like this? And How can he declare the end from the beginning? Because he is outside of time. He, is, he transcends. He is our Father who is in heaven. So when we pray to him, we're not praying to the local God of Western Hemisphere thinking. We're talking to the King of the Ages, the High King of Heaven. And so, there are some other passages, I want to put some of these on the screen, that teach us God's, God's transcendence and how we ought to respond to his transcendence. And the first one is in Deuteronomy chapter 4, and verse 39, it says this, Know therefore today, and lay it to your heart, that the Lord is God in heaven, above and on earth beneath, and there is no other. It's another one in Deuteronomy 33, verse 2. It says that there is none like God, all Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help and through the skies in his majesty. None like him. He transcends everything. Psalm 97, verse 9. Psalm 97, verse 9 says this, For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth, And you are exalted far above all gods. You're most high over all the earth. You transcend all of it. 
And then here's where uh, um, Solomon in um, Ecclesiastes 5 verse 2 connects the transcendence of God to what we're talking about, how we pray. When he says this, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. Why? For God is in heaven and you are on earth. So Ecclesiastes 5 verse 2, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. So there is a direct impact to how we pray by seeing how that God transcends our Father who's in heaven. So I mentioned earlier that we should begin praying by remembering to whom it is we're speaking. And so here's some application. When you speak, remember to whom you speak when you pray. Our Father who is in heaven. That's what this reminds us, this invocation. Our Father who art in heaven. He is the transcendent one. He is the majestic one. He is the high king. He is the superior sovereign one. Remember who it is you're praying to. Remember who you are when you pray, that you were not born his child. You are only his child through redemption. That's an incredible thing. That's an incredible thought. And then thirdly, remember the goal of life, that our goal of life is to glorify him. And so when he says, our Father who art in heaven, if you're remembering who he is and who you are when you pray, the first petition that comes in the next phrase in the, in the, in the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be thy name. The ultimate goal, that we're to make his name holy. So, when Jesus offers this instruction in prayer, he starts off, rather than giving us a how-to manual, because we want that, you know. I mean, I, I, do that. I can't figure something out. And I Google, and most of my words, Google search, start off with how to change da-da-da-da-da. How to find da-da-da-da-da. You know, and you find, you know, more boring YouTube videos than you could ever think about how to do whatever. Um, uh, and someone's taken the time to do those videos. And you can, you can learn how to do almost anything, right? How to wire a light, how to change a this, how to... Um, that, but when Jesus instructs us to pray, rather than starting out by saying, here's how to pray, he really starts off on an invocation by saying, here's to who you're praying. It's more who to than how to, right? And when we have the who to, the how kind of takes care of it. And so remember the gospel invites you into prayer by bringing you into this adoptive relationship. And then reminding us of God's majesty and sovereignty. He is in heaven. Reminds us of his power, his transcendence. And so, these two, our Father and who is in heaven, really, here's the main point. Here's Here's the sermon point, the big idea. Put it at the end this week. Is that when we pray, we should balance reverence with intimacy. That there's an intimacy that he's our father, but there's a reverence that he is the God who is in heaven. That, so, so 
however you pray in your own words, you know, I mean, this, this shows up differently for different people. I mean, some people are more cavalier in the way they speak, but, but, but be very careful about that and how you talk to God, that there's a reverence there. And I'm not saying you have to speak in Elizabethan English when you talk to God. I'm just saying there's a, there's a level of respect and reverence because you're not, you're remembering who it is you're talking to. I mean, um, I mean, I have heard uh, my wife remind our kids when they're talking to her, it's like, do you realize who you're talking to? Yes, ma'am. All of a sudden, you know, be a little more respectful in the way you're talking right now. You know, um, that there's a little bit of that. And we're like, hey, remember who you're talking to here. And so, so anyway, here's some um, application for us. I want to think about this. Our Father who is in heaven. Is God truly your Father? Now, I know he's your Father in the sense of creation. But are you truly his child? Because prayer like this is, is really only for Christians. And he invites you to be one of them. He invites you to be part of the hour, Father. And this is offered to you. This, this, you can be adopted. I mean, he, he, we re- saw right there in John 1.12. But as many as received him, to them gave he the right or the power, the ability to become the sons of God. How, how do you do I receive him. I recognize my need and that I need, <coughs> excuse me, and I need him. And so is God truly your father? And, and so Christians that do know that he is truly your father. Jesus begins this model prayer by addressing this gospel relationship. That this, our sonship, our ability to relate with God, only come through redemption. So if you've experienced that, let that fuel the way you pray. That, that there's so much meat behind that dear heavenly Father. That sometimes you just pray without thinking, that I pray without even thinking. There's so much gospel-centeredness to that. There's so much depth there that, that should let that fuel the way you pray. I mean, and you're like, goodness gracious, if God takes a care of the biggest problem I have, being my sin and that I'm condemned to an eternity in hell, and I can say, dear heavenly Father, how much more can he take care of that I've got anxiety about what's going on this Thursday? Or I've, got, or I've gotten stressed out about this, or I don't know how I'm going to meet this need. I mean, you're like, you know, that should feel, or who else would I talk to about this? I mean, why would it be the last thing I do? It should be the first thing, because he's the one that's brought me into this, that he's the first one I need to talk to. And so, is God truly your father? And how would that affect the way you pray? And then secondly, Another application. Does viewing God as your father affect the way you pray? Because it should. I mean, because it, 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 viewing God as your father should affect the way we pray because it tells me something about God's disposition towards you. It tells me something about God's disposition towards me. I mean, you're not scared to approach a parent unless it's your mom and it's 3 a.m. And uh, not really. She's usually pretty... Once there's kind of that sick noise, she goes into mom mode, right? But like, what do you need? Oh, okay, right? Or, or me, usually I don't even hear it, you know, but, um, which I hear about the rest of the day. Um, but it shows something of God's disposition towards me that I know. I mean, you know you can go to that father. 
it also, the gospel is this ongoing sign to us that, I mean, parents love to hear from their kids, especially those of you that have grown children or or they go off to school or to camp. They love, you know, I, was, I saw online this week that um, one of the Christian camps for their, they, they, for their junior campers, they started installing this year what they're calling Parent Portal, portal where they're putting webcams around the campsite so that parents can log in to see their kids all the time. Why would you go through all that trouble to install cameras for parents to log in to see what they're, because parents are eager to hear and see what their kids are doing when they're gone for that week at camp, right? And grandparents want to log in and find out. And how much more should that show me about God's disposition towards me and his disposition towards you in the way you pray? That he is eager to hear us pray. He's even happy. I mean, he gets excited when he hears that phone ring, right? I mean, it's like they're, they're praying to me, and I get to talk to them, and they're talking to me that God is eager and glad to receive the prayers of his children. He's not bugged, you know? Um, I mean, sometimes when you call somebody, and hey, is now a bad time? Can you spare a couple minutes? And you're kind of worried they're too busy. It's like God's never that way. That's a huge implication to how we pray. And maybe there's some people here, myself included, that letting this gospel idea of in the beginning of the Lord's Prayer that, that I need to change my view, my thinking about God's disposition towards me in how I pray, that he's not too busy, that he's eager, that I need to bring them to him. And then finally, I want to make sure we don't miss the forest for the trees because we are. this is the Lord's Prayer and the words, you can get nitty-gritty with the words like we have been, but we also want to make sure we zoom out a little bit and we see the context of the Lord's Prayer and how that, how that would apply to us. So in the context of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is, begins in chapter 6 by talking about their giving to the needy and then their prayer and then their fasting and then uh, towards the end of that chapter, the, not to lay up for yourselves treasures on earth and uh, to seek first a kingdom, lay your, where your treasure is, there your heart be also, have treasure in heaven. And then how not being anxious and anxiety and worrying about uh, what you're going to eat and what you're going to wear and how you need to bring these things to your father, who, um, the, who your heavenly father who knows you have need of them. So don't be anxious for them. Um, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. I mean, all these things. Um, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added unto you. Don't, therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient to the day is its own trouble. So in this context about money, about giving, about prayer, how should, that, how should the idea of God as our Father change and affect that how we view those things so here thing here, here's where i'm trying to go at viewing god as our father the fatherhood of god for us should have an effect an effect on how we see money how we see our needs how we see our giving to other people viewing god as our father so i ask you how does that need to change the way you view money, the way you view your needs, the way you view your health, the way you view 
those in need around you and your almsgiving, um, it should affect it. Our Father who is in heaven. So I hope you'll remember God's majesty when you pray. I hope that between these two phrases, you'll kind of balance this idea of intimacy with transcendence. This intimacy and sovereignty in this phrase. And that brings us to these petitions, these six petitions that we'll get at next time we're together in this text. Let's pray. And before I close in prayer, spend some time. Let's just spend some time in the quiet, making some things in your own heart. Maybe thanking God for this, how the gospel impacts our prayer. You're adopted because of redemption. He's your father because he's redeemed you. He's adopted you. He's clothed you as one of his children. Now let that change the way you see his disposition towards your prayers. And, and maybe even your, affect your prayers, your views of money, how you pray, what you pray, seeing that he is your father who is in heaven. If you're here and he's not your father, this is the time we'd love to talk to you about that. If you just want to slip a hand up or walk up front here or go to the back or even afterwards just grab somebody, we'd love to talk to you about how you can receive Christ and become part of his family. God, I thank you that you are our Father who is in heaven. Lord, would you change us with this thought? Would we follow our Lord's instruction and in how to relate to you in prayer? Help us to remember that it's not just how to pray, but who we are praying to. Thank you that we're your children. God, I pray that you change me through meditating on this truth and that you change our church and each one here. Thank you for being our Father who's in heaven. We pray this in your name. Amen.